53rd episode of the Opvac cast on this the week of Thanksgiving so much to be thankful for I'm thankful for People Magazine's sexiest man alive Adam Myros isn't it isn't it like the week after Thanksgiving when this gets posted I mean yeah but come on you you you're you're breaking the illusion here man come on uh or maybe not if we can't get that other one fixed right sure yeah cuz we're very professional around here that's kind of like our thing so <laughs> That makes perfect yeah, we're sense. We're on like two two trash podcasts in a month. Yeah. So uh, speaking of things we're thankful for, um, I'm thankful that I completely lost my mind last night, and uh, I'm gonna buy a really expensive new mixer board because my other one cost thirty dollars and has somehow lasted mm, like five years without exploding. So I think it's about time for an upgrade. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So we also got Sean Glennis with us. Hello. Hey, Sean. Got any big plans this week? Oh, uh, Thanksgiving. Never heard of it. Also, from the mean streets of New York, the Brooklyn brawler himself, Eric Bailey. What's up, guys? Good to have you back, Eric. Mr. Fancy, Mr. Film School at NYU, gracing us with his presence. Not NYU. (laughs) I'm not that rich. (laughs) <laughs> I, ju- I just kind of threw it out there. I figured that was it, but you know, same thing. It's all NYU to me. Basically. I mean, but you're, you're basically, you, you've been in New York for how long now? Um, three months. Yeah. End of August is when I moved there. So yeah. Okay. Okay. So are you starting to feel like Woody Allen yet or? <laughs> um, yes. I'm very, yeah, <laughs> I was going to do a Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Halfway through. <laughs> There was so many bad jokes I could make there that I just would be in very poor taste. So. Uh, That's good. That's what I try to do. I try to set you up with as many bad options as possible. So kudos <laughs> I, have a finding... I have a question for Eric. What's that? Yeah. Hey, how's the pizza? It's great. <laughs> well, there you go. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, that thin-ass, greasy shit you got to fold? You kidding me? God. It's, I mean, it's good. I'm, I'm not going to trash pizza. Good pizza is good pizza. But anyways. <laughs> I got a dollar pizza place right around the corner from me. So <laughs> A dollar pizza place? Yeah. Is it, is, and it, it, they don't just like serve you tax? like a Totino's party <laughs> pizza. No, it's like a whole slice of pizza for a dollar. Uh, that's legit. Quite nice. common in New York, actually. Mm. Well, shit. Well, thanks for uh, joining us. Even though you forgot your mic back in the Big Apple, and you have to yeah. use your MacBook. Oh God, Jesus! Anyways, this is God, why we upgraded been... our, our fidelity so that people could use MacBook mics. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what it's all about. It's it's about one step forward and seventy three steps backwards. So uh, we're 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 knocking out of the park as always. Anyways, um, yeah, so we kind of came together to get today because, I don't know, it's cold, it's miserable, and somehow in the last month or two, we've really been subjecting ourselves to some, um, some pretty intense shit. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. The other, the other week, I did something very strange. I went and I saw in an empty theater 
the the killing of a sacred deer at like ten o'clock at night, and they were just would, they were just there like killing it. And yeah, they're just, just they're just killing it. Yeah, I was just like, oh, cool. Uh, the Oriental Theater downtown is doing like uh, animal they're sacrifice. I'm into that. Yeah. So this is a movie by I, I'm going to screw up his name horribly because I've only ever like seen it written and never actually heard someone say his name. But uh, Yorgos Lathamos is that is that sound about right? Kind of nailed it there. Did I really? Shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to brag or anything, but I'm really good at Greek names. Uh, if you can get his writing partner's name, though, I will be very impressed because I don't know how to pronounce that. Oh, God. We're not, we're not going to go <laughs> down there. Uh, since, li- since you live in Milwaukee, we should have had uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo on the pod to talk about uh, Lanthimos's uh, canon. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and, and we could finally settle once and for all. Who truly is the Greek freak? Ooh. It's hard to say. Yeah, uh, this is cinema's Greek freak. <laughs> he is cinema's Greek freak. So he is known for uh, mostly for a movie that Duncan. he put out last year. <laughs> Duncan, yeah, that too. Uh, the Lobster, which is – whenever people – whenever I'm like, oh, yeah, there's this really great movie. It's called The Lobster. It's super weird. And they're like, well, what kind of movie is it? And I just kind of shrug and I'm like, romantic comedy? Because it's it's really hard to pin down. And I think black comedy, really black, dark, weird comedy. And you can kind of assign that same sort of hesitant description to uh, maybe his debut film, which is Dogtooth, which was a little bit more divisive. And uh, I don't I don't think many critics uh, lauded it as much as they did with The Lobster. Was that his debut or was that just his breakthrough? I don't know if it was his debut debut, but it was his first like globally distributed film. So we're just going to call it that because I'm not going to look on IMDb and, you know, tell you the Greek TV show that he started off in or something. Um, But yeah, so this is a really, really weird dude with a very unique vision. And he sort of fits into this category of filmmakers that are antagonistic and intentionally just like provocateurs. And yeah, so I, I saw this movie alone and it was probably the single most depressing experience I've had in a movie theater that wasn't just because I hated a movie. Uh, and I, I literally just left and had to go to the bar across the street and have a couple drinks to sort of clear my head because it, it really fucked with me. So have you guys had a, have you guys had a chance to see this yet? Yeah. That's good because uh, otherwise we wouldn't have a podcast really. We all just said no, no. Um, yeah, we didn't, we didn't bother. We figured, uh, fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. No, it's, it's what strikes me uh, from your experience, um, and I'll, I'll be interested uh, in Eric's to hear about Eric's as well. But um, it was that you went alone, or that you were in the theater alone? Uh, it sounds like. Um, yep. And me and Myros were probably with like I don't know a group of twenty people, maybe uh, not a full theater by any means, but there was there were definitely people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, still like more full than it should have been in Lansing, Michigan. Yeah, um, and it I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I kind of I would love to see it with more people, but I was I almost went to see it twice or for the second time this week. But I was like nobody's nobody would be in there at all at this point. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was it was interesting because um, I think uh, I thought it was really funny. And outside of Myros, I don't think anybody else uh, laughed. <laughs> in the theater and so it kind of amplified like a 
a very eerie feeling. It was, it, you know, it's kind of like the movie when you're laughing at it, it's, it's not like punchline-y. So it's, it's this very like uh sterile black comedy and uh, the like silence of the audience almost sort of like amplifies that. Oh, sure. Sure. And I think like the lobster has elements of that too, where you you're laughing, but you're sort of like looking around and laughing hesitantly uh, and the killing right. of a sacred deer is it's similar to that, but it's also different because it, the amount of like violence and just weird shit that's going on um, and just the depravity of the whole film, yeah. it, it really, yeah. it, it makes you even more uncomfortable, at least for me, like the parts that I laughed at and then I felt even more uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Um, what about you, Eric? Yeah. Did you see it at your fancy New York theater? I- no, I, I'm back in Michigan for Thanksgiving, and uh, I literally just got back from a screening here. Oh, yeah. In the uh, same theater, probably. Probably. Um, and NCG, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got. I was there. I probably had like four, three or four other people in the theater with me. Um, so it was like, I think it's been out here for a while, so the crowds have died off a little bit. But um yeah, I, I think after this, I've seen The Lobster as well, and after this, I think I will sit out any future Lanthimos <laughs> movies, um, oh, unless so I hear something, so until I hear gonna, something different. <laughs> you were also one of the people who wasn't laughing, I take it. I actually did laugh at a, a couple parts, like, there, there was, like, um, we'll get into, like, spoilers and stuff later, but there were parts that I did think were genuinely funny, I just didn't enjoy the film overall. Sure. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I think... Lathamos has a knack for kind of like wringing humor out of not just like depraved situations, but his humor works best in the most mundane of situations. Like there's this scene in the very beginning where, um, you know, two doctors are like walking down the hallway, uh, Colin Farrell and someone else. And they're just having this really boring, stupid discussion about their watches and like, yes, it's waterproof up to 30 meters. Huh. Mine's waterproof up to 50 meters. I prefer a metal band. I prefer a leather band. Like just this really stupid, like dick measuring contest. But it's said in such a deadpan way that it's hilarious. Yeah. yeah it's kind yeah. of the same. It's funny for the same reason Wes Anderson's funny, mm-hmm. essentially. It's just like that deadpan delivery. Oh, yeah. I didn't really know at all what the movie was trying to do at that stage. So I don't know that dialogue really kind of reminded me of American psycho. Almost. It was just like this infatuation with wealth and uh, mundane nonsense. And it was, it's incredibly stilted dialogue throughout the film, but uh, I kind of loved it. I think it might be my favorite film of the year thus far. Uh, Yeah. I, laughed my ass off and i thought it uh, <laughs> it had a legitimate point to it as well so yeah. i don't know i i i am on board for uh Lanthimos. i think he's grown every film i've seen of his uh dogtooth is definitely like full-on provocateur like haneke worship but uh <laughs> i feel like he's he's evolved past that in the, his his next two films and they're both uh sort of meditations on certain human emotions and reactions and uh yeah i love his do approach. you think that a lot of the other people in the theater yeah. were just like 
I don't know, like, a lot of times when I go to the art house theater, it's just a bunch of old people who basically go and see everything because it's like, oh, it's got a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes and it's got a person that I know in it. And this has, like, the the high critical scores. It's got Colin Farrell. And then you, you see a name like The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And that's, like, the most art. Like, if, if you were going to come up with, for, like, a, an improv <laughs> sketch, the name of a art house film, that, that would be the name that you would choose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's artier than uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I was kind of wondering that too. I would love to hear like what our audience thought of it, or just like any um like I any mainstream audience uh, person um, because this is his movies. You kind of have to approach like you have to you have it, it's it's much easier to palette when you know what you're getting into, um, and it's not that his movies are better than mainstream movies, but um, I mean in like a blanket statement, but. Um, but you have to be like sort of you have to like sort of calibrate your senses to know what you're getting into so you can get into it so you can start thinking about it um otherwise you're just going to be like this is weird like what is this this is twisted yeah. um and it's just going to be off-putting sure. and really really stark I, I think the other thing that that really had this one sinking its hooks into me is when i saw the preview and i and i read a little bit about it i didn't read too much i figured it was going to be a movie about fucking kids and and it, and it yeah. kind of i don't want to say it marketed itself as like a the child molester film of 2017 but just, yeah the, the way that child. it it sort of positioned itself and it, and it does this in the narrative too like it, it's hard to not think that oh colin farrell is having a sexual relationship with this teenage boy who is now using that to you know blackmail him or whatever but it's like no 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 it's actually a lot more insidious and twisted than that is and uh yeah (laughs) yeah i i like the way that the movie sort of plays that up um uh in that like you before you know what's actually going on he's lying like he peppers in these lies and these sort of like moral compromises that he's making that are very slight and you don't know what you don't know the motivation and you don't know the the Mm -hmm. circumstances um, and sort of is kind of like it's interesting to hear like where it led 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 people's minds before you you know find out what's actually going on. Well, that's the thing. Like I I don't know. I hadn't seen even a trailer for it. I mean, I kind of knew what I was getting into just because it's Lanthimos, but uh, I knew nothing of the film at all. And the whole first act is is just so disarming. Like you you you, it's impossible to know where it's headed. Uh, the presence of that kid actor, I, I should have his name up, but I don't, uh, but he is, he's a very sort of unique film presence and, uh, has, I believe was in Dunkirk earlier this year and, and really nothing else. Uh, he's got a, a, certainly a very interesting look about him. He's not traditionally movie star, good looking, and he is incredibly awkward and stilted in this film. And every scene he's introduced to new people, it's like, what a charming young man. <laughs> Everyone's like fawning over him. Yeah. And it's like, what, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, he, uh, he has yeah. a weird look about him. Like, I feel like he would be, you know, one of the murderous children from like children of the corn part 12 or whatever part they're on right now. And he's got, he's got like a little bit, like you said, like an unorthodox <laughs> look. About him. Yeah. 
He looks like Paul no Dano with fetal alcohol syndrome, basically. Yeah, yeah he does. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the fact I that like, everybody's uh, like, oh, what a nice young yeah. man, and oh, he's so handsome, and all this stuff. It's just like, nice. Good look. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I thought that was that was really interesting too, and just a, a nice stylistic choice to sort of uh, again kind of make you feel uneasy about the whole thing. <laughs> so <laughs> everything about it, I, I'm interested in Eric's point because yeah, I, I don't know, I I really loved this. I thought it had such a lived in sort of world and. Uh, Again, I, I didn't think it was like pointlessly provocative. I, I saw a great deal of theme regarding, you know, guilt and consequence and, and reconciliation even as it goes through generation and yeah, atonement and anything of that nature. Uh, mm-hmm. It said a lot to me. So I'm kind of interested to see where it missed for you. I, I guess I, I, I guess I didn't get any of that. I felt like it was kind of like one of those like silly like thought experiments or like morality exercises that you're Mm -hmm. given in like a freshman philosophy class kind of thing. It's like, what would you do if some kid came to your house and told you it's like, as like a, as kind of like this revenge plot, like somehow magically like made your wife and your children sick. And like you had to, or made your, just your children actually. And you had to kill either, one of your one of the members of your family in order to prevent them all from dying it's it's like one of those weird things where it felt like kind of this like it felt like it felt like a um it it felt like a kind of movie that i i'm getting really sick of where it it felt like um a chance for the director to sort of prove his own intellectual superiority uh-huh. and just like look look how like deep i'm thinking and like look how like like look how complex hmm. reminds know, I, me of another movie <laughs> I, I i was thinking i was when as i was saying that i was like they think exactly <laughs> it's about mother <laughs> and i like mother and you guys hate it but we'll get to that um um but yeah it's and partly just the fact that like it just i'm not sure why it just didn't really move me sure. in that way um and like, and now we're getting to like a whole subjectivity argument. Why aren't you just like child murder, man? Yeah. That's what yeah. we're here for. <laughs> uh, <laughs> doing it. Um, I read the there's there's a quote in um A.O. Scott's review that I that I like a lot and um uh made me think about I guess uh, something larger than this movie. But um, he says uh, Mister Lanthimos is less interested in moral shock therapy or social criticism than in aesthetic estrangement. Says Sacred Deer feels like feels like a dark, opaque bit of folklore transplanted into an off kilter modern setting. Um, I can buy that. Yeah, and uh, but uh, this thought of it as like this um, piece of folklore uh, really makes me um, think about how people in the future will view it because I, I know like me and Myros talked a bit about. Um, uh, after the movie, uh, how timely it felt, right? Like, um, because I think that this is largely about one man who's obviously in a higher caste system, socially and economically. Um, and he, he has like power. So, you know, he can, 
he he literally gets to operate on people's bodies while they're anesthetized um and uh he kind of gets to do whatever he wants and he hasn't reconciled or he hasn't come to terms with the fact that he um so i guess we'll we'll just get into spoilers at this point so if you haven't seen the movie turn off uh and come back but um uh you find out that he is responsible for this uh disarming child's father dying um uh, and later it's sort of alluded to right that he it's because he he it partially because he had a problem with uh alcoholism and drinking on the job probably so like this carelessness um so he hasn't really come to terms with that uh he blames it on his assistant um and so i feel like the whole movie is about this guy who did this thing before and he does these little like sort of like micro transactions with this child emotionally and uh economically to to sort of pro- like make himself feel better uh without having to face this thing that he did <clears throat> and um i guess that that's a that's a timeless tale uh this this thing of of not wanting to face your past but right now um it's hard to not think of it in terms of all of these allegations that are coming out in Hollywood with these people, um, these, these men of power, uh, not like obviously knowing that they did something and lying to themselves, uh, and having to, to come to terms with it publicly. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess, uh, it's nice that it is this, like, it's not about somebody in Hollywood, right? It is this like insulated, nice, piece of like folklore that is able to be read um you know it's not so direct i guess and that's one that's one of the things that i really appreciate it i really appreciate that about the lobster too is it i don't i don't know if this is making sense but it's not a very pointed piece of um satire it's just kind of like broad about relationships and love and um i guess modern uh relationships but um i don't know does that does that make sense at all go ahead Uh, no, yeah. Sure. I actually hadn't thought of it from that angle. That that's actually a really way, interesting way of looking at it. Well, yeah, I got the. I that's why I was discussing with Sean. Is I, I know it is certainly it lends itself to a certain uh, universality in its its themes because it it's certainly not a film that was was written or directed with the current situation in mind, but yet a lot of the imagery, especially in that third act when that power dynamic is sort of flipped and you see all this imagery of supplication and it's just such an interesting uh, look at power dynamics. And it is something that feels especially relevant right now, but you know, always has been and always will be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the power dynamic stuff really worked for me. And I I totally agree that it it felt very timely and topical, even though I, I, you know, I can only assume that that was an intent, but who knows, um, especially because of the way that Colin Farrell's character tries to atone for what he's done, which is instead of outright admitting that he made a mistake and trying to better himself, he's just trying to maintain his status quo while also doing these little like pithy things that don't even matter. Um, uh, as just gestures to show mm-hmm. that he cares. So it's just like, oh, I meet this kid once a week and I buy him lunch or I got him a gift. I got him a watch. I invited him over to my house to meet my family and just, you know, trying to show him just this really surface level 
uh, just niceness that doesn't really matter. And you see that a lot, too, with all these people that have been uh, all these men that have been accused of doing all kinds of horrible shit. It's like, oh, Harvey Weinstein says, I'm going to donate a bunch of money to women filmmakers and I'm going to take myself to therapy and be a better person. It's like, yeah, well, you still fucked up a bunch of yeah, is he from Wisconsin? <laughs> he actually is. He's uh, a lot of people. A lot of people think he's a New York guy. No, 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 totally from Wisconsin. Anyways, uh, yeah. So I think I think that part really really works well too because that's that's what you see with a lot of people in power is when they when they finally get called on their shit, they still find ways to kind of wiggle around it while doing the bare minimum to make it seem like oh they're not that bad of a guy and. The, the power dynamic stuff, I love the way it plays out between Colin Farrell's character uh, and, and Nicole Kidman's character, his wife, because, oh, we are right there. Did someone just swallow their microphone? Could have happened. I'm not sure. Uh, even when there's there's a couple of scenes where they're going to have sex and like Colin Farrell's kink is Nicole Kidman yeah. basically like pretends to be like dead or anesthetized or something. So it's like, he has this weird, like almost like a, yeah. a rape fantasy of some sort. And it's just very unnerving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, can we, can we talk about the fucking spaghetti scene? Yes, please. Uh, spaghetti scene. Spaghetti all scene. <laughs> Well, there's also, uh, yeah, so um, I also like how Nicole Kidman, I guess we'll get to it, but Nicole Kidman starts, like, talk about supplication. Like, she starts, you know, kissing his feet <laughs> at the end, the kid's feet at the yeah. end is this way. But, um, yeah, so they're in this the, the, the basement, and he basically has them at his will, uh, and he's eating this place, plate of spaghetti. But what, what exactly do you want to talk about it? uh how it's the best Ever? scene that i I've agree seen in, in a long time <laughs> um i i just can't get over it, it had such it, it, the imagery it was like the movie in a nutshell i guess but it was <laughs> this mundane activity of having a spaghetti dinner but again th- this fucking kid <laughs> okay okay but let me let me just get this out of the way right now like okay okay martin that's that's the character's name (laughs) we get that colin farrell got drunk and and it probably caused him to kill your dad during surgery we get that we get that but does that really excuse you sitting around in the morning in your underwear eating a cold plate of spaghetti because that's just fucking disgusting You know and what movie this would pair well with? Fucking ah, funny. Another good <laughs> spaghetti scene. What are, what are your top five spaghetti scenes, oh, Maros? I, I, uh, I can't think of another fucking. Are you guys? Are you guys? Scene. Are you guys? Uh, you guys in on this Clifford thing? You're not. You're no. not down with the cliff. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. No. Uh, as as we discussed way back in episode long fucking time ago uh i kind of found that movie obnoxious well yeah so, but I'm, uh, I'm saying it's about uh so martin short plays this kid and you know he he has this he's at the behest of this this family and then he sort of like flips it and has them under his under his foot so to speak in this weird sadistic way anyway this is a tangent uh spaghetti it is spaghetti uh just the physical acting in the scene it's just 
outrageously hilarious and awkward and <laughs> uncomfortable to watch. And it's all he's he's simultaneously delivering this monologue about his father's death and how after his father's death, people always told him that the way he ate spaghetti reminded him, reminded everyone of his father. And it comes to fucking nothing. He, he, he it's, twirls it's it around this, a fork and then eats it. Right. Yeah. He he talks about how he came to the realization that everybody just, spaghetti there, was, there was nothing special about it. And it was just the way that everyone had eaten spaghetti. And I don't know. There's something very poignant about that. Well, thought and just I think he, what an effective scene to me. Yeah, I agree. I think it's hilarious. And also the scene I thought about the most, or, or at least one of them, but it's this also, I think there's some connection uh, about him sort of realizing that he's not special, right? So he's yeah. a young child and he knows that he's not special. Um, <clears throat> and that's something that he came to. And Colin Farrell is somebody is a character that thinks that he is like, he is owed something or he, he, he's able to not live by the rules of somebody like this kid. Um, he, 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 not that he thinks he's like special in some, I, I don't know. That's a weird word, word to use, but um, he thinks that he's some, somehow like owed some sort of like affordance. Um, and this kid is sort of like juxtaposing those two uh, ideologies between them in that scene. Yeah. That sort of battle over the value of, of life and individuality yeah. is, is, is another certain undercurrent throughout it. You, you get Nicole Kidman again, when, when they get into full desperation, like saving their own skin, selfishness, uh, talking about how, Oh, you know, we can always have another kid. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. I found myself weirdly during that scene being like, Oh yeah, I guess that's pretty logical. John is but, a uh, at the same time, I, ha- I guess that's the thing. I haven't really uh, uh, reckoned with with the with the movie is like why do you think that that was why do you think that was uh, what happened to him like why is it taking people's lives is it is it just to show him like what a life is worth is that his, is that the kid's idea is like I'm going to show you what a life is worth um, or why why do you think that that was what uh, Lanthimos and his co-writer uh, conceived i think it's it it goes back to this idea of of just disempowering someone who's you know had a massive emotional impact on you and that Mm -hmm. you you know feel intrinsically tied to because of that um it's very i think it's a great choice to make colin farrell Mm -hmm. and his wife both doctors in this movie um because Obviously, their their children are dying of this bizarre disease. None of these specialists can figure out what it is. They've got like the best of the best looking into them. Eventually, they're just like, we can't do anything. Just take them home, you know, basically saying, let them die. And it's all because of this this teenager, this kid who has somehow found something that the best doctors in the world can't find that is going to slowly kill these children that he was able to give it to them. And then also... Uh, there's more spoilers. Um, there's this scene where uh, Martin is standing outside in the hospital parking lot and he's sort of become like romantically attached to Colin Farrell's daughter. And she gets a phone call from him and she's like, oh my God, you're here. Oh, you're outside. And he's like, yeah, like just come walk over to the window. And even though she hasn't been able to use her legs at all for what seems like days or weeks in film time, 
um, she gets up and walks to the window. So not only do we know that he has the power to give them this horrible disease, but he also has the power to reverse it like immediately without them even knowing. So that really adds to kind of like the horror of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, I mean, we had ta- discussed it in terms of a fable uh, and, and really, I think that's kind of what the central conceit is, is, is it's just sort of a philosophical examination of something as simple as an eye for an eye. It has a very old Testament wrath feel to it. Right. I, I feel like, you know, uh, as we'll discuss in our, in our second movie of the day here, uh, th- you can get a little ham fisted with the biblical <laughs> metaphors, but, <laughs> um, this one, it, there's a lot of biblical imagery here. Uh, again, we were talking about the kissing of the feet, which uh, feels very Christ-like in its execution. And this whole thing, you could look at it as, as almost like a, a Job scenario, uh, a man kind of beset, um, in his eyes, unfairly. And I don't know. It's hard to argue that. I, I just feel like the setup is inherently to kind of show the futility of revenge. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's something, speaking of like <clears throat> the way he constructs these, uh, these conceits um, between this and the lobster, which are the only two of his movies I've seen um, both times. Um, I was, I've been thinking of this, this author and I should go back and read his stuff, but Donald Bartleme, um, a short story writer, uh, both movies have reminded me of like the sensation that, that I, I can only like think of uh, in tandem with this short story writer who um, it also writes in like very large stakes, but very like magical realism like this, you know, like um, like we're not even questioning like it's it's a, I guess a testament to the, the film that we're not we're not questioning why this how this kid has this power, but just that he does. Right. Um, and I think it. It, there is like some skill there to just be able to like string people along and be like, I can do whatever I can have any character do whatever. And you're just going to like go along with it and like, think about it obviously, but you're not going to be like, well, that's silly. Or that seems like a cop out. Like, I don't know. Um, it's, it's really, um, it's a skill that, that we don't see often. Well, shit. And I appreciate. Right. It's, it's kind of, again, similar to, Haneke, whose whose work he he clearly must admire, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, you get you get stuff like that in a lot of Haneke's work, like Funny Games. Uh, certainly, his most provocative audience uh, baiting film, you know, is antagonists basically break the fourth wall rather constantly. It, it's it's something you don't really question in the course of the film. Uh, these guys are good at crafting narrative, and that's why they get away with throwing rocks at the audience yeah yeah i think hearing you guys talk about it maybe has clarified like why i didn't click with it and i think i it's also sort of clarified like maybe why you guys didn't like mother i think we were all sort of approaching these films from like sort of the wrong sort of tonal viewpoint in a sense like like you guys talk about how like it's kind of like so outrageous and like funny, like you guys, like you guys described it as like a black comedy at first when I sort of, I sort of went in expecting a horror movie and it, and I think it's both of those things, but I think maybe if I'd seen it more as like this, like pitch black comedy, I probably would have clicked with it and enjoyed it more. 
and sort of mm-hmm. seeing what you guys see in it. And I think it's sort of the converse with mother. Like I sort of went in expecting this like outrageous, ridiculous movie. And that's what it is. And I don't, I don't know what you guys were expecting in it. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point. And the other thing is too, is, and I'm going to say this right off the bat is at this point in his career, like I, I want to take Darinovsky by the scrotum and, and just cut it open and then stretch it over his face like a Lucha Libre mask. That's how I feel about him as a, as I think, a I think we, you went in with, um, I think I know why you didn't, <laughs> mother. <laughs> I remember. I remember walking into Mother and uh, antagonistically uh, asking Myros if he was ready to see his favorite movie of the year. He was pretty open minded about it. I I was. I mean, I can't. I can look at. I I'm not like a huge Darren Aronofsky fan, but I could look at his filmography prior to Mother, and I can't see a film that I hate. It doesn't exist. I, Those are all—they're all—they're all varying degrees of before okay we get, to good. Before we get bogged down in that, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, I know Jennifer Lawrence is a highly doubted actress, and she's the highest paid. She's actress also single in the world. now. But at the end of the day, I don't think she's the right choice to play the lead in a Glenn Danzig biopic. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's- uh, before we get bogged down in mother, I I wanted to shout out. Uh, um, <clears throat> the part that I think I laughed at the most besides spaghetti, uh, in killing of a sacred deer, which is the, 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 the daughter, the sister, <laughs> I know daughter, I'm talking about <laughs> asking if he can, if she can have his MP3 player when he dies. <laughs> I, like wh- my favorite part was, um, this is one of the few parts of the movie where I did laugh is um, a couple scenes later when the sun starts bleeding from the eyes and she just starts wheeling yeah. downstairs going, he's dying. <laughs> like, like siblings do like, like right, it's just right. a mundane thing. Yeah. God, he, he milked that stuff. <laughs> that girl just like dragging her dead limbs. across <laughs> the. <laughs> Yeah, I think it is a testament, though, like to the performances of those children. Like, uh, I know uh, we'll talk about uh, probably that maybe uh, during Oscar talk. I haven't seen Florida Project. I know that plays a large part in that, but uh, child actors. But um, but the child acting here is wonderful. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're fantastic. Um, Well, and and the, the kid, I shouldn't call him a kid, the like fully grown adult who looks like a weird baby man that plays Martin. Yeah, we looked He's up actually, his name now. Barry Kyogen. How old is he? Because he plays a 16-year-old. Or an 18. His name is fetal alcohol syndrome, Paul Dano, and he is baby man, okay? His name is, his uh, name well, is Barry fetal, Kogan. <laughs> well, fetal alcohol syndrome, Paul Dano, should win Best Supporting Actor. I'm calling it right now. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that, that being the case, uh, the the girl in the movie, like the older sister, she's like 10 years younger than he is yeah. in real life, which is crazy. Uh, but yeah, like uh, the, the kids in this are great. And but because they're not humanistic, like it's going to, it's not, it's going to, nobody's going to yeah. think twice about it. No. And it, it actually, it does. I mean, and this kind of fits in the whole provocateur thing too, is uh, I love the Florida project. I absolutely loved it, but uh, I, I've, there's this underlying thing feeling that I don't necessarily like connect with or agree with. But, and I've heard a few other people kind of voice this concern too, that uh, even though it's like funny and charming, 
and deals with like, you know, exposing a very dark and real and sort of undershown part of uh, American culture. Um, it, it could be con- misconstrued as like almost exploitative. I, I had the same thought. I like, that was my big concern with the movie is it felt a little too like, it was like, let's like, Oh my God, poverty is so much fun. Like it felt, it felt like it was veering a little too close to that line for me at certain points yeah. with the Florida. Project. And, and I can, I can kind of see that in like certain parts. Like there's, there's a part in the Florida project where they literally like burn down an abandoned building. Um, and, and it's, it's and, and that's, and, and it's, it's really fun. Yeah. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And it, and yeah. And like it, it, it framed it as like, Oh, these kids are such rascals. Like, and it's just like, no, they burnt down an entire like housing complex basically. And, and I guess, I guess like the, the way that it, it worked for me is it, it's sort of like if you watch like the little rascals, not the nineties movie, but the actual little rascals mm-hmm. and kids like getting into trouble and shit but it's like the depression so they're all poor and fucked up and you don't really think about that part so it's the the reason why the florida project worked and didn't feel like provocative or exploitative or antagonistic to me was primarily because it stuck so closely to the viewpoint of the child so you were getting that kind of like kid view of things so Mm -hmm. of course they're not going to see everything for what it actually is. It's like so. the exact opposite of, of sacred deer where it's just like, which is just drenched in cynicism and yes, everything. And it's like, it's completely on, it's on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. It was well, that, weird. That sounds both. more up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it was weird seeing both those movies and enjoying both of them so much and, and seeing them in the span of, the, of like one week, because it's like, wow, these are both amazing, but they couldn't be any more different as no. <laughs> but I think I think as far as like the cynicism of uh, killing of a sacred deer, it, it's definitely the cynicism that I enjoy, and it's not one where the joke is on the audience. Um, <clears throat> and I feel like, as a possible segue, I think mother like not the joke's not on the audience, but he's definitely like there's a certain like aberrance for or abhorrence for the the audience there's like i don't care you're gonna listen to my lofty Mm. treaties and um and it's gonna be awesome because i'm great uh (laughs) but it's not going to be about connecting with you um at all and i I can i think if you i think if you make a film so baldly cynical you have to couch it in some humor and fun and there's not any of that in Mother. What? <laughs> let me let me tell you what my what my impression of Mother was, and this this is like how I felt leaving the theater. Mother is like a guy going on a first date with a, a girl, and he and he takes her to see Lost Highway, and then after the film, he goes, "What'd you think?" And she goes, "I don't know. It was weird. I didn't really get it." And then he's like, goes, "No, it's oh. good." For this, this is didn't understand. <laughs> Obviously, this is a work of art. <laughs> That's but door blows in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I once again am fascinated uh, to hear the dissenting opinion on this film because, uh, by the way, we're full into Darren Aronofsky's mother now. Um, <laughs> it's pronounced mother. Motherfucker. Mother. Actually, we, we do we do have timestamps. I'm going to timestamp it right now. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we... I don't know. I found this film, like, 
it was just so obvious. Like from minute one, it's like, okay, yeah. My problem with it was I've read the Bible. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm like, I see what you're doing here. And then it just kept going on and on for, for two and a half hours where I was like, I, I got it after five fucking minutes, man. Yeah, well, it Why is are you doing seller. this to me? <laughs> yeah. The, the weird thing was, is it was like, this is one giant mixed metaphor slash allegory, the film. So you've got like the biblical stuff. Mm-hmm. You've got the like environmental News. stuff. And then you've got the overarching, like a great artist must destroy everything around him, especially his muse. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like dude like pick one of those things first of all you get one pretentious thing to make your movie about you don't get three <laughs> we did not allow you three that's overreach well uh, also you you made a joke about jennifer lawrence being miscast in this film but jennifer lawrence is miscast in this film <laughs> and she's fucking well, terrible you don't think jennifer film. lawrence would marry like crow magden evil javier Bardem? <laughs> well also She's not expressive enough. This, it's kind really? of a demanding. Like you have to really carry this film in that role. I think, and I, I did not find that to be the case at all. She was just like it almost. She felt very passive to me. Like she was just floating through. Well, the I movie, think she was. Which, if I were in the movie, I would. I would be floating through it. That's for fucking. <laughs> cool. Um. I well. I I think that's kind of the point. I think she's meant to be this really much more passive presence in the film. Um. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that, but I'd say that I still need to know why she's being well, a passive presence. I need her to convey something to oh, me okay. through, without speaking. This, this kind of reminds me of one of my big issues with it. Uh, well, all of my issues with it are big, and there are a lot of them. But uh, <laughs> one of them is that um, all of the characters were signposts for something else. It was just like um, we weren't supposed to like no, like <clears throat> Ed Harris and. Michelle Pfeiffer and whoever else uh, just came in and were supposed to be like things and they weren't supposed to like, there isn't this, this relationship that's rooted in any sort of like functionality that we're, that, that we're familiar with. And so it's just like, okay, so I'm just here to watch you paint by numbers. Um, and that's not fun to me um, to see you get to get to uh, an allegory or get to a point by connecting the dots where it's just like something like killing of a sacred deer is like built from the inside out. And it's like, um, uh, you know, I'm going to create this story and then hopefully it means something to people. That's that's the way Killing of a Sacred Deer means to me, whereas Mother feels reverse engineered. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, I don't want movies, I don't want stories, I don't want songs that are created to meet a point. Um, I think that that's a really mm-hmm. bad... Um, I feel like that's a, that's a really bad motivation to tell a story is mm-hmm. to tell a point... Um, if you have like stories to tell, like people's stories to tell or like relationships to show us, that's what I, that's what I really dig out of pop culture. But like, I don't want to see you make a, I, um, uh, right. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to say ahead, that Steve. Ed Harris is actually one of the few things that I, I loved about mother because I, and this is partially me just like hating the movie and, and getting bored at some point and thinking of things in my head. But I, what I really wanted this movie to be is just Ed Harris won't leave my house. The movie, you know, it's like, it's basically like the exterminating angel, except Ed Harris is just hanging around. It's just like, why the fuck won't this guy go? And they, I, I, 
quickly, I'll shut up after this, but uh, just a funny story. Um, <laughs> when me and Myra saw this, Ed Harris wouldn't stop coughing. And there was, there was this woman in the theater that was just like simultaneously like coughing. It felt like we were in stereo. Just this old like hacking. Is that 4D experience? Yeah, 4D. Mother 4D. Uh, I I could just uh, again I want to get to Eric's but I, man I could just rail against this movie all fucking day I I hated okay, it okay like okay I, I oh my Eric liked it and Eric we're not we're not discounting your experience a lot of people like it it's not just yeah. Eric like no a lot of smart Eric, people you, like it I'm just the only one in the group <laughs> yes yes yeah for for me it was just like no. so thuddingly obvious and painful and redundant and I. It's offensive. Like, I guess, sorry. If, if I could say, like, you know, Lanthimos' film, if we're, we're going to continue to compare them, is a film that is utterly metaphorical. It's not a film that has it, – it's not a film about people. It's not a, a situational film. It's, it's certainly an idea film. But it still creates a world that feels inhabited right. and real and has its own rules. And Mother – okay. It, it does not. There is no reality in this film whatsoever. There's nothing grounded. This the whole thing is just this floating Bible story you know, mess. Maybe I actually <laughs> love Mother. Like, okay, think think of a movie you've seen in the last year that's easier to dunk on than Mother. Like it's so so easy. Like <laughs> yeah. monster trucks. Monster, monster trucks. It's like at the end of the day, it's just like, man, that production was so fucked up, and it's like it's just a shitty kids movie. Whereas mother is just the, there's the the self importance that goes along with the things I don't like and it's just like God I just want to fucking dunk on this movie all day. All I want. Okay, Eric. <laughs> so Eric, Sorry. Eric, okay. uh, yeah, dunk, on, dunk us. on us. I don't know if we'll be able to. Dunk. I guess again we get into like a subjectivity thing. Like Adam was describing, it's just like oh it's just so obvious and it's blunt and it's mixing its metaphors and it's like I, that's kind of what I like about it. Like sure. it's it's, it's 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 the fact that it is so blunt and it's just hitting you over the head with everything. It's like sometimes you just want a movie that's just like just tell me what you mean, just like just just just. I mean, maybe don't like don't spoon feed it to me, but just like, just, sure. like don't fucking ob- obfuscate everything. Like don't don't mm-hmm. think that like don't mistake subtlety for uh, 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 art- artistic skill or creativity yeah, yeah, yeah. or quality. It's like sometimes it's like the most blunt movie on the planet is like, like I felt like, I don't know. This is just the first example that popped in my head. I feel like Mad Max Fury Road, which came out a few years ago. And I think we all kind of agree. That's a great movie. Like Mm -hmm. that, like that's not a subtle movie. It's like, it's pretty obviously like feminist. Like it's about environmentalism as well. Like it's, you know, it's got that edge and it's like, it, like it, it quite literally bludgeons you like that entire movie. I I can definitely, I can appreciate what you're saying. Like, um, I mean, I think that Tokyo Story is one of the best movies ever made. And that's, there's, it's just about, you know, there's nothing hidden there. It's not exactly. like subtle, like, um, <clears throat> definitely. But uh, so as somebody who likes it, what do you think when you get to like the end? Uh, it, like, I, I want to know as we're going through these stages, because I know what I, I, I can imagine what Myros and, and Cuff feel. Um, but like, so what do you think about when, you know, it hits this third act where it's like this, this uh, full out, like World War Three in their house. Right. And, and then also like the Eucharist. What do you think of those things? <laughs> the, the Eucharist? 
Wait, that's what that was supposed to mean? I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Like, oh, yeah. oh, the baby cannibalism. Okay. I thought, yes. oh, okay. I was, I was confused for a second. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like. I'm not putting. I'm not putting you on the spot no, to like, yeah. defend yourself. I literally just want to hear like what you know somebody Again, else. Just, I guess. I guess it. I, I like the fact that it's just like. I find it funny that. I guess I'm. I'm guess I'm a douchebag like Aronofsky, where it's just like I kind of like somebody who's just like, yeah, I'm gonna fucking have like the, like they're gonna eat a fucking baby. <laughs> <laughs> I like somebody who just thinks up some ridiculous shit like that and actually puts it to film. And it's, like, 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 it's just like just some batshit idea. I'm not claiming that it's like it's an idea that the world needed, but it's just like, yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's just it's again. I'm sort of looking at this. Maybe I'm looking at this the way that some people look at the room, where it's just like I enjoy it because it's terrible. Like maybe I really do think this is terrible, but I'm just confused. I think that was, Jack, think that was Jack's take. <laughs> it's like maybe I enjoy it because it's terrible in that sense, and I'm just con- confusing the the feelings that I'm having about it. But I, I and like like kind of the back to this idea of like what we were going in expecting and everything. Like I kind of I kind of went in expecting. Like I think some I think who who was it that I saw on Twitter. I think it was maybe Miriam Bale I saw on Twitter say that it's like it's just like this pitch black comedy. And like if you kind of going go into it expecting that, like I think you'll enjoy it more. Like it is it is huh. this really uh, like outrageous film. And there were moments where like I laughed like hard where I was just like like at the very end where he's just like where he's like holding Jennifer Lawrence's like just charred body and he's just like i need more though and she's like but i have nothing like and i, I just started laughing sure. I'm like is this guy for real <laughs> like, like i feel yeah. i feel like it's actually like a pretty like damning self-portrait of that aronofsky made of himself like he knows what an asshole he is and I, so I think, clearly that she left him yeah <laughs> i think I, is it you you think that that this is aware that it's funny at, at points? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I never got that sense at all. <laughs> I thought this movie was real serious. It, it had a real great important point that people are poopy and they'll poop up the world. And... <laughs> no, I think I think it was aware of how ludicrous this... Mother needs to change the diaper. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was aware of how ludicrous this the Javier Bardem character was. Um, I think he's just credited as a, as him or something to sort yeah. of belabor the allegorical point. Um, but I think I think it was aware of like how just what an asshole he was. It was it was very aware and it was very. Yeah, um, and, I think so and too. It was, and it was and it was really pushing that like how much of the, this guy are you willing to take? How much like how much of this are you willing to buy? Like it was really pushing that. I feel like. Yeah. Uh, well, this was that was like another thing that Sean and I were kind of lamenting when we were watching it is that this could have been a really great absurdist comedy in the hands of a very different. I thought it was. <laughs> that's that's so in- that's interesting. Yeah, who did we? It was so somebody? muddy. Uh, I think we had mentioned Buñuel. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And or perhaps Fellini. Even it, it's just a sort of material mm-hmm. that needed that absurdist right. hand and i i i think you're inventing that eric i don't think that aronofsky wanted <laughs> yeah. this film to be 
a comedy. Maybe, well, well, intention is uh, artificial, but yeah, I, that's what I was. That's what I was thinking of when we were discussing, like talking about what, when I was preparing my thoughts for the podcast. Is like it, it gets into kind of an interesting thing where I think that is in the movie. I don't know if that's what Aronofsky intended, but I sure, think yeah. that that's there at least in the movie that I saw. And so yeah. it kind of gets in this whole tricky territory of like, does it matter what the author, what the author, the auteur intended, or does it just matter? Like what the work is, what yeah. it ended up being. Well, it's, it's just like, it's like, like you said with the room where obviously Tommy Wiseau felt that he was making the most important dramatic film of all time. Uh, when in fact he was making like the greatest anti-comedy film of all time. Right. <laughs> well, sure, but I don't think I'm going to come out and say that the room is a comedy and it's a great comedy because that's that's not it actually really it actually says accurate. in the back the uh, the DVD case that it's a comedy because he felt this <laughs> <laughs> gets back into um, one of my favorite things that I read this year on the Beguiled uh, when uh, Angelica Jade Barstein talked about it being like this. Um, unknowing uh, skewer of white feminism, or not white feminism, but but white uh, femininity. Um, but like, it's like it gets into this thing where it's like, do you think the film recognizes that or not? Does it matter? <clears throat> I yeah, think we're exactly. conditioned. Like, I think it, we're does conditioned. It matter right? if the film is marketed or created as this idea of like this just absurdist comedy? Does it matter if it was created like that? But like, sure. if if it sort of ends up being that, yeah. And I think right now, yeah. I think we're conditioned uh, currently to read movies as like what they're marketed as, yeah, uh, and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Which um, which is sort of gets into the audience reception with that, like the famous the fact that this movie famously has like the dreaded F on cinema score, which is like incredibly rare. It's like I think audiences going went in expecting like one kind of horror movie. And I would say that it, to a certain extent, the movie mother is a horror movie also. Um, but it it gets like, they went in expecting one kind of horror movie, but they got something very different. And I think that's like, it comes at night. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I actually, the thing that I was thinking of too was, um, are, are you guys familiar with Instagram poet, Colin Yost? What? <laughs> no, you don't. You don't know who that is. Oh my god! That, you guys that name cool. means something to me, but not in the. In okay, the so he's this guy from Portland who is just basically a fucking idiot. So he's, uh, he's he's a self-published poet, but he's got a ton of Instagram followers. So he got his his book in like Powell's books and at Barnes and Noble and shit. And his Instagram account, which has like tens of thousands of followers, is just like his like typewriter written poetry with like cigarette butts like drizzled around <laughs> it. And it's just like three shots of whiskey, your body splayed across. my. Oh, bed. I've seen this. <laughs> yeah. so, oh, he's a, he's a Saturday night live. Anyways, Colin, yo, Saturday night live. Yeah. I'm not making oh, this, this is a totally different guy. Totally different guy. Uh, so, well, well, that's why I know the name, not because of Instagram <laughs> poetry. But anyways, I've never been on Instagram. <laughs> Colin Yost, the poet, thinks that he's like Charles Bukowski, like reincarnated. Yeah, this guy he sucks. He's an insufferable, misogynistic uh, Portland hipster who has nothing interesting to say and doesn't. And he's like a marine biologist. Like he's not, uh, you know, Bukowski was a misogynist piece of shit, but at least he was like completely impoverished and like wine drunk at 2 p.m. every day. Like this guy is just 
he's like white privilege personified and writing these bro poems. But the thing is, is like, yes, I hate him. But at the same time, like every time I read one of his poems, I, I just I like laugh until I cry sometimes. because <laughs> Such a douche insulated from like how douchey he is. And so this I is this see. is precise. I get your point here, Steve. This is where they lose me on the death of the author because I get that films can be imbued with things that aren't the author's intent, but when their failings are so hilariously shitty that uh, <laughs> they're embarrassing and make you scoff, I do not think that a film or or a poem or anything gets credit for that. You should not well, get extra credit points for subtext because your thing is an utter failure. And well, that also brings up a question of like, how do we consider a piece of art like a failure? Like, like is the room a failure? Even though like a bunch of people get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Like, yes, it's not a like traditionally good movie, but people go to screenings of it and they have a ball watching it. Um, like, does, does that make it a, maybe it makes it one kind of failure, but it makes it another kind of success. So like, that's true. I think that yeah. it's initial reception probably hurt its creator. It, it was so different from what his intent mm-hmm. was that it wounded him thereby i think it would be hard to call it an unqualified success right. but i mean certainly see i it and i would and i wouldn't say that mother is an unqualified success there there are moments well, that it, I don't if like. you said that i would i would call you insane <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, that's I, I i really i enjoyed that uh sort of tangent from steve's thing because i was thinking of a different one in compare in uh, comparison with mother, which is that, uh, something that Jack was talking about, um, the other day offline <clears throat> or off air, which was, um, wrote talking letter. about, talking about, um, yeah, you, <laughs> dear Sean, <laughs> dear, dear Sean, we need to revise the canon. Um, uh, no, but, but he was talking about these things about, uh, about the, how we build cannons or who builds the cannon which is, you know, white dudes and how, uh, basically, yeah, yeah, the can, yeah, that was built by a white dude. Um, uh, anyway, uh, it's reflection. The, the, the makers are reflected in, in what the canon is built of, which is, is white dudes. And it's, um, sort of like what we think about when we think about the canon. And what I mean by that is the, the, the films that people are studying, the, the films that, that uh, people that are introduced to the medium gravitate towards when they want to understand the medium, quote unquote, um, and revere uh, certain people, uh, they drift towards the, the canon. And um, those are usually made by people who have enjoyed a lot of privilege in their life, um, which sounds like this Colin Yost guy, right? Um, and He's like making these things that, you know, nobody really, I guess some people do take seriously. So like, we can't like, we can't corner the market on, on what this guy's stuff means, but, um, but we don't take it very seriously. Um, and I don't take mother seriously at all. I think it's terrible. I, I think it, like, it's literally one of the worst viewing experiences. Like I was unhappy. Like, it's not usual that I'm unhappy. Like I might be bored or something, but I was just like literally unhappy with how bad this was. Um, and this is somebody who's trying to make something grandiose. The statement, like I said, he's, it feels like he's reverse engineering a point 
in a film, which is just like, I don't want mm -hmm. like a package. I, 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 that's just not what I go to. I, I want something that I can, I can graft on my own thoughts about. Um, and this, this seemed like a rejection of those things, but like basically what Jack was saying was like films like mother, I don't think you mentioned this, but, um, represent this, uh, privileged thing where it's just like the world wants to hear my thoughts like this innate uh um thinking that you that the world needs your art right which i guess is also in the movie but i don't think it's rendered very well uh, <clears throat> that like whatever it takes world needs to hear what i want to say and it's like no the world needs to hear what other people have to say um and i don't think aronofsky understands that yeah hmm. also I, I i can get that point i i can get on board with that aspect of it and i can i can yeah that's a different sure can we like go back in time and stop darren aronofsky from reading the bible if you get into the fountain like <laughs> i'm considering it i'm considering it okay and, and here's here's my final point on mother and i think this is a, a good way to you know kind of like close close the book on this one um and, and that's by raising the question of would mother be a better movie if darren aronofsky just shut the fuck up so a week before Mother came out, Darren Aronofsky released a statement that was distributed widely to the press. And I'm going to read it to you guys. And I, I want you to just, just go ahead and just buzz in as soon as you want to, like, punch him in the dick. Okay? Ahem. It's a mad time to Whoa. be alive. As the world population nears 8 billion, we face issues too serious Did to Patty fathom. Ecosystem as we witness extinction at an unprecedented rate. Migrant crises disrupt governments. A seemingly schizophrenic U.S. helps broker a landmark climate treaty and months later withdraws. Ancient tribal disputes and beliefs continue to drive war and division. The largest iceberg ever recorded breaks off of the Antarctic ice shelf and drifts I, I wish we had sea. Kenneth Branagh to read this. At the same time, <laughs> We face issues too ridiculous to comprehend. In South America, tourists twice kill rare baby dolphins that wash ashore, suffocating them in a frenzy of selfies. Politics <laughs> resume <laughs> events. People will starve to death, while others can order any meat they desire. Wow. As a species. Our footprint is perilously, perilously unsustainable, yet we live in a state of denial about the outlook for our planet and our place on it. From this primordial soup of angst and helplessness, I woke up one morning and this movie poured out of me like a fever dream. All of my previous films gestated with me for many years, but I wrote first draft of Mother in five days. Within a year, we were rolling cameras. And now, two years later, it is an honor to return for the world premiere. I imagine people may ask why the film has such a dark vision. <laughs> Herbert Selby Jr., the author of Requiem for a Dream, taught me that through staring into the darkest parts of ourselves is where we find the light. That explains that. <laughs> is that a footnote? <laughs> story about marriage. At the center is a woman who is asked to give, give, and give until she can give no more. 
Eventually, the chamber story can't contain the pressure boiling inside. It becomes something else which is hard to explain or describe. I can't fully pinpoint where this film all came from. Some came from the headlines we face every second of every day. It came from the Bible. <laughs> Some came from the endless buzzing of notifications on our smartphones. Some came from living through the blackout of Hurricane Sandy oh. in downtown Manhattan. Shout out to... What's going on? There's a siren in the background. Some came from my heart and some came from my gut. Collectively, it's a recipe I won't ever be able to reproduce. But I do know this serving is best drunk in a single dose of a shot glass. Not back. So this is that, that, that lovely performance. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was that was great. Um, uh, if you want to cast me for your next film, I'm cool with it. Uh, I just want. I'll have you as my Vincent Price-esque narrator of... (laughs) I didn't know that existed, and that's like the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. But it brings up a a point um, uh, that... uh, It's interesting what Eric was saying earlier about sort of like viewing this outside of this like... uh, This subscribed... Or not subscribed, like prescribed way of viewing this movie, uh, which is sort of like inherently like undercutting like uh aronofsky posing as this auteur um which yeah uh this will if we don't stop soon i'll start talking about dunkirk (laughs) oh we don't want that (laughs) no we can't i i really wish that i could take aronofsky's advice and and slam it on down like a shot unfortunately it's so long it feels like drinking a, a gallon of milk you and I have to agree. It, it's, a, it's a movie. It's only like two hours, but it feels much longer. And, and in some ways, in so, sort of like a good way, but mostly in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, and th- that's another issue that I had with it. And actually an issue with another um, antagonistic movie that I saw recently, which I'll touch on briefly. But um, it really like it feels like it sort of lays itself out and it blows its load <laughs> within the first hour. And then it's just going and going and going and it's like i i don't know like and you could have gone from like hour one to baby eating and just cut out everything <laughs> in between and i don't lost much so i actually i just saw uh, a movie recently it's called uh better watch out are you guys I'm familiar with this one no apparently not okay so it marketed itself as basically like what if home alone was a horror movie and this feels like like a, a guy who likes horror fil- films who sits around with his friends smoking too much pot and is just like, dude, what if we did this? <laughs> because <laughs> go on YouTube, there's there's plenty of like recuts of uh, like Home Alone footage is like Home Alone as a horror trailer and, you know, things like that. So this guy actually did it. And uh, are, are any of you planning on seeing probably, this? So probably not. Shit uh, that, okay. that seems unlikely. Okay, you're not exactly selling it, Steve. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not selling it, and and that's not to say it's horrible. It's not horrible. It's fine for what it is, but it does this thing where it it sets itself up so you think that it's going to be about like a home invasion, and then these kids and their babysitter sort of, you know, like thwart the home invaders through like super gruesome bloody versions of actual like home alone style Jesus. traps. 
Yeah. So, and, and and this is and that's kind of a big part of the movie. But what it actually is is this like twelve year old boy is actually a psychopath and he wants to like fuck his babysitter. So. Yeah, so it's not a home invasion thing. He, like, stages a fake home invasion with his friend so that he can turn... <laughs> so he, that he can turn this movie into hostile, the Home Alone version. And it, it basically, it lays its hands out, its, its hand out at, like, the 45-minute mark, or earlier, probably the 30-minute mark. And then it just it completely falls apart because there's, there's nothing else left to happen other than this kid is a psychopath and, Oh, this isn't the movie that you thought it was. And that's it. And and that's the whole thing. And then it just keeps going. And, and that kind of like on the idea of like being needlessly provocative. So yes, there's a scene where he takes someone and he like duct tapes them to a chair and then he drops a paint can off of uh, the second floor and it like decapitates a guy because that's what actually would probably happen. Joe Pesci? But yeah, Joe Pesci style. <laughs> Except this guy, like, literally gets his head caved in. Uh, and, and But but other than that, it's just, like, the, the shock of all this torture porn is, is the entire second half of the movie. And it's like, you don't need that. So why do you construct this where your reveal is so early and then you have literally nothing left to say other than, yo, dog, isn't this fucked up? Like, <laughs> Sounds that's, like that's the whole thing. That, that reminds me of Braun, Cell Black 99. But <clears throat> that's a whole... <laughs> It's a whole nother yeah, you, thing. Yeah, you got you got beef with Jake over that one. You guys are gonna have a, a brawl and cell block optimism vaccine over that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So, uh, man, that sounds like a really bad movie. I'm definitely not gonna watch it. <laughs> no, it's, uh, not, it's not horrible. Like it's not as bad as uh, Shut In or something like that. But it's it's not good. It's, it's yeah, but what I I just have. I take umbrage with the construction. Couldn't you just make like a fun movie about gory home alone hijinks? <laughs> that's the thing. Is that's that's the better movie? Is gory home alone hijinks worse? And the whole thing- they had to like slap on the the other Macaulay Culkin good son reference as well. They're like, yeah, well, that, that's what smash the two together. Yeah, it's like you know what's a good Macaulay Culkin movie? Fucking Home Alone. You know what's not the good son? And and it goes total good son at the forty five minute mark. <laughs> Yeah, and if there's one thing, and Eric, listen, I know you're going to film school, but let me let me sit you down and teach okay. you. <laughs> you never go good, son. Okay. I promise not even to watch Good Son, so that I like I don't even know where the direction of that is. So I can. Well, let me let me let me tell you something about the Good Son. One, it sucks, and two, uh, it's my uncle's favorite movie. My dad's brother, and nobody on my dad's side of the family talks to him anymore. So I mean. <laughs> Take that with a grain Telling. of salt, because he likes the good son. Uh, I mean, that's why I don't talk to him. <laughs> All right. So wait, why did you bring this up? Um, I because it's provocative. There's no reason. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was provocative. No, it was overlong. Yeah, it, it got redundant. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. Which is never good. That's that's what's happening to our podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're uh, we're about to wrap up. All right, boys. Let's uh, let's do put over. Sean, what are you putting over this week? <clears throat> I will put over. The 2017 documentary LA92. Uh, so this is uh, we are 25 years removed from the LA riots uh, precipitated by the Rodney King beatings, among other events. But um, the National Geographic uh, they produced this movie uh, this year. It's a documentary that's made uh, 100% out of 
archival footage. Um, and so there's no like talking heads or recounting or anything like that. There's, there's like some title cards here and there. So it's not like, like stop making sense at all then, right? No. <laughs> okay. There's no, there's literally no talking heads in it. Uh, that's, uh, that's a shame. I like the talking heads. <laughs> They're great. They're great. Uh, I don't know what, uh, David Byrne has to say about the LA riots, but, um, uh, anyway, <clears throat> Um, it's made of all archival footage, but there still is like spliced in cards just to like give you frame of reference here and there. Um, but they're not like uh, they're not pointed one way or, or another uh, politically. Uh, but it, it's it's uh, extremely um, uh, linear and narratively focused without those uh, crutches. But uh, but more than that, not not to say that like talking heads in, in itself are, are a crutch, but they can be used as such. Um but uh, without this talking heads uh, device, you get something that feels immediate. Um, so you, you don't have people talking about it in the past, right? Um, it just feels like, you're, you know, you're watching uh, jury deliberations and um, outcomes. And then you're also watching like some of the actual like riot footage. And it just, if it's super unnerving and it feels uh, real and it feels, uh, uh, obviously, but it feels like uh, current. Um, and there's something to that obviously. Um, but LA 92 is definitely one of the, uh, best movies I've seen this year. Cool. Uh, Eric, what are you putting over this week? Um, I'm putting over a show, um, called the good place, which I don't know if anybody here has heard of it, but, um, it's a show. It airs on NBC. It stars, um, Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. Um, Becker. Huh? Yeah. Titular Becker. <laughs> Dr. Becker? Yes, Becker. Sam from Cheers. Um, and it's about a woman, played by Kristen Bell, who wakes up, who is dead, and she wakes up in the afterlife. And um, she sort of asks, initially, she um, she asks Ted Danson kind of a funny line where she's just like, am I in the, am I, and then she like points up, or, or am I, and then she points down, like kind of with trepidation, sort of wondering, he's like, we don't like the heaven hell language you know language but don't worry you're in the good place and so it's like it's basically but you find out that she was kind of like an asshole in real life and so she she deduces that like oh she's not i'm not supposed to be here there's like another uh, like uh, my friend eleanor shellstrip that was supposed to be here in the good place who died but I'm, i'm supposed to be in the bad place essentially and it's sort of about her and so she meets her soulmate who was a professor of ethics um, and so the two, and so it's sort of about her trying to learn how to be a good person and earn her place in the good place, essentially. And it's, it's, it's really funny. It's got a clever premise. Um, it's created by Mike Schur, who is the co-creator of, um, Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So if you're, if you're fans of those shows, you'll probably love the humor, although, I would say this one's like it's 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 a little more it's a little weirder um it, it than that like there's there's obviously like a fantastical element to it like you know there's a lot of like there's a lot of great visual gags that they get away with because it's like it's heaven and like anything is possible basically so there's like shrimp flying through the sky in one in one scene so they get a lot of mileage out of like great like VFX driven visual gags and everything and um, the cast is phenomenal. Obviously, Kristen Bell and Ted Danson are great, but there's um, a character, I'm forgetting the character's name, but she's basically sort of like 
the help desk of the afterlife. She's like this robot that basically just goes around and caters to everybody's needs. And like the act, I can't, I don't know the actress's name either, but the actress who plays her is hilarious. Um, and she often gets a lot of the best lines in the show. Um, but, and, and it's a great sort of, um, for anybody who's sort of studied philosophy or like morality and ethics and everything, you often, if you get into stuff by like Kant or Hume or like Plato and Aristotle, it's like, it's kind of, difficult for like the layman to sort of get into. And I feel like one of the goals that the creators had while making up this show is sort of like, let's try to like make ethics accessible for people while also making this like really funny comedy. And another selling point that I would like say for it is that like, if anybody likes lost, it's sort of like a half hour sitcom version of lost. And like, it's like, it's heavily serialized. There's like a lot of like this kind of like high concept heady stuff, obviously like the sort of philosophical references and, you know, every episode basically ends on a cliff on a, like a huge cliffhanger. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's a good plate. It's called the good place. It's, it's on NBC. The first season's on Netflix. I'm making my way through the first season right now. And the second season is Netflix. Is that like an a la carte service? <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, but um, and then the second season's airing right now on NBC. So yeah, I highly recommend it. It's really funny. It's very very smart. Yeah, you would think if it was very funny, it would be on TBS. So that's that's interesting. <laughs> Surprisingly, no. No, that's when I've been really like it, it's sitting there, and I'm like, I know when I start watching that, I'm really gonna like it, but I haven't. Just, I like, I think you very much enjoy it, Sean. I'm sure get into it, Sean. <clears throat> Jesus. Uh, Byros, what are you putting over? Uh, well, we, the, the kernel for this podcast was, we were, we were actually going to talk about, uh, Lars von Trier, uh, Never a heard of. few months ago and <laughs> it, it, it got a little bleak. It got a little bleak and I, I feel like most, we didn't folks, want to hear Jack know, talk for 45 minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, I think, I think there was going to be a lot of hate. Uh, going on, which obviously we're not averse to. Uh, see these it's but, just like um, that, uh, that old like Dr. Uh, Dre song. You know, there's so much drama with the LVT. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so it, it felt like it was going to be a little dry, a little redundant. We scrapped it. But, uh, you know, I want, he was the genesis for us talking about this sort of provocative filmmaking. And so I figured... In honor of that, I, I would recommend a Lars von Trier movie, which uh, my personal favorite Lars von Trier movie is Antichrist, um, a real uplifting film, uh, it's fun for the whole family, uh, set them around this Thanksgiving and, uh, you know, after the turkey's been ingested, just sit down, pop on Antichrist and. What is, on that note, what is your favorite, and Cuff, you can chime in too. I don't know if you like him, Eric, but uh, what is your guys' favorite Haneke movie? I think I've only seen two, maybe one. I've seen two. I've seen Cachet and Ooh. Piano Teacher, but outside of, which I enjoyed, but um, outside of those, do you guys have like some that I yeah. need to see? I, I like, I like funny games more than most. Uh, I think Cachet is fantastic, but I, I really, really, really like Benny's Video, which I think is one of his earliest feature films. Uh, but that mm-hmm, one's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, check that one out. I would. Um, I've only also seen two of his movies. I saw. I saw the remake of Funny Games with Naomi Watts, and I forget who else was in it. But um, and sure. then um, I've also seen a more. And I'm like Cuff. I I like oh, yeah. I like um, 
I liked the remake of Funny Games apparently more than most. It's got very negative reviews for some reason, even though I thought it was actually pretty good. It's it's kind of a like nails like white knuckle kind of anti thriller in a sense. It's just it's kind of agonizing, like all of Haneke's movies are. But uh, <laughs> um, and, but I would say I would highly recommend him more. It's definitely like it's kind of like his <laughs> least. Hanuk, his least characteristic movie. Sure, much- sure. That and that and White Ribbon have been like sitting on my shelf for years, and I, I need White to Ribbon watch those. Uh, White Ribbon's kind of a yeah, it's a bit of an obtuse film. Not not the easiest one yeah, to wrap your head around. That I I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with 2003's Time of the That's Wolf. Good. Oh, I've started that is, before. I don't know why I didn't finish it, but yeah, it, it's quite excellent. Okay. Uh, it's got like a post-apocalyptic vibe, and it's uh, very, very good stuff. Cool. I'll, I'll, I'll put these on my to-do list. Do I need to say anything else about Antichrist? You know, Willem Dafoe's dick, and no, no, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my put over. So first of all, make sure you go to Spotify and you check out my, <laughs> my playlist that accompanies what? this podcast. Um, it's based on the film Mother, so. Um, it's, it's actually the <laughs> Reverend Jerry Falwell, who I respect greatly. Um, he's just reading some of his favorite Bible stories. Uh, then we go into Mother, of course, by Glenn Danzig, and then Mama by Phil Collins. So check that out. In addition to that, uh, I'm really digging the singles that Anna Birch has released. Uh, she's got an album coming out in 2018 on Polyvinyl. These singles are actually on uh, Spotify. You can really listen to these things. But it's just, uh, it's it's fun, lightweight indie pop, but it's got this like like 1960s girl group vibe to it. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And it's cool too, because she used to be in a band that I really didn't like, but I was always like, man, she's the most talented part of this band that I hate. And now she's solo. So that makes everything better. So what yeah, was the band? Anna Birch. Cool. That's all I got. What uh, was the band she was in? What's that? <laughs> you, you, want, you, want me oh, to, you just want me to drag the band right here? I mean... Uh. <laughs> I can't. I didn't sound like I need more to listen oh, to it. Okay. Uh, Frontier Ruckus. Fuck those dweebs. There's a bunch of dudes with beards Isn't playing that like, like a fucking local band? saws. I think that's it. Um, yeah, yeah, they're a Lansing band. Lansing like, band. Oh, playing saws. That sounds like the Tool Time band. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was kind of like Tool Time. There was just like a lot of. <laughs> but you know, as as it goes. So yeah, make sure that you check out optimismvaccine.com uh, if you are listening right now to this podcast obviously you are because you're hearing my fucking voice go to iTunes rate and review us give us five stars write a written review why would you do that that's a great question because the more written reviews we get the more five star reviews we get the more visible we are on iTunes and the more visible we are the more people listen and the more shit that we can do for you uh, we have a Patreon that we are putting out or a Patreon I'm not sure how to pronounce that but we're going to do a thing so you can give us money uh, make sure you check that out. We'll be linking that soon. In addition to that, if you have any questions, comments, you want to tell us why Eric is the best and we're the worst and mother is super cool, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also tweet us at optimismvaccine. If you want to tweet us individually, I am at Steve Cuff. Sean, where can people tweet at you? At Mr. Glennis. Thank you. Eric, how about you? Oh, sorry. Uh, Eric, are you I was there? cutting out there for a second. Um, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> Eric, watch the fucking... I am on Twitter at Eric Bailey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, don't need to, you don't need to contact Eric. <laughs> That's son of a bitch. Uh, Myros isn't on Twitter because I, I don't know. He's on MySpace. Find him there. 
other than that, uh, I guess I guess that's all we got. Gentlemen, thank you as always, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Monster Getty. Did you capture it? just let it slip? Yo. It's Paul Spaghetti. Knees weak, arms spaghetti. There's vomit on his sweater spaghetti. Mom's spaghetti. He's nervous, but on the surface, he looks calm spaghetti. To drop bombs, but he keeps on spaghetti. What he wrote down, the whole crowd goes spaghetti. He opens his mouth, but spaghetti won't come out. He's choking how? Everybody's choking now. Spaghetti's run out. Time's up. Over. Loud. Snap back to spaghetti. Oh, there goes spaghetti. Oh, there goes spaghetti. Loud. He's so mad, but he won't give up spaghetti. No, he won't have it. He knows he keeps on forgetting that mom's spaghetti's dope. He knows that, but he's broke. He's so stacked that he knows when he goes back to his mom's spaghetti. That's when it's back to the lab again, yo. This old spaghetti. Better go capture spaghetti and hope it don't be better. It's ready. You better never let it go. Oh. You only get one spaghetti. Do not miss your chance to blow. Cause spaghetti comes once in a lifetime. You better lose it's now. Your mom's spaghetti. It's ready. You better never let it go. Oh. You only get one spaghetti. Do not miss your chance to blow. Cause spaghetti comes once in a lifetime. You better the soul's escaping through this hole that is gaping. Mom's spaghetti's mine for the taking. Make me spaghetti as we move toward a new world order. A normal Postmortem, it only grows harder. Spaghetti grows hotter. He vomits all over. Spaghetti's all on him. Coast to coast shows he blows his own daughter. He only grows harder. Homie grows hotter. He goes home and barely knows his own mom's spaghetti. There's vomit on his mom's spaghetti. These hoes don't want him no more. He's cold spaghetti. They moved on to the next mole who flows, man. He knows his palms are sweaty. Oh, he's calm and ready. Oh, it unfolds, I suppose it's old It's ready. You better never let it go. Oh. You only get one spaghetti. Do not miss your chance to blow. Cause spaghetti comes once in a lifetime. You better lose yourself. Your mom's spaghetti. It's ready. You better never let it go. Oh. You only get one spaghetti. Do not miss your chance to blow. Cause spaghetti comes once in a lifetime. You better no more games. I'ma change what you call spaghetti. Tear this motherfucking roof off like two mom's spaghetti. I was playing in the beginning. The mood all changed. Spaghetti. Chewed up and spit out. Vomit on his sweater, but I kept to it. Step right in the next cipher. Hold your nose, cause here goes the damn diaper. All the vomit inside amplified.